Rob Shank here. Welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this extraordinary church leader, one of the first voices to speak out in opposition against the church's role uh, in the rise of National Socialism in Germany, along with Adolf Hitler. And today, my conversation partner is not only uh, a fascinating individual in and of himself, but uh, he is an eminent scholar when it comes to uh, the era in which Bonhoeffer uh, did the best part of his work. Robert Erickson is Kurt Meyer Chair in Holocaust Studies Emeritus and Professor of History at Pacific Lutheran University. He earned his PhD in history at the London School of Economics. He is author or editor of five books and more than 40 articles or book chapters. All of his work has dealt with two major institutions in Germany during the Nazi period, churches and universities. Now, normally I wouldn't belabor a biography but I'm going to test your patience in this because I want you to know the scale of Dr. Erickson's scholarship, his expertise in this subject matter. So bear with me here. I think you'll find this biographical sketch helpful to you, including naming some of the resources he is responsible for producing. Dr. Erickson's first book, Theologians Under Hitler, Gerhard Kittel, Paul Althaus, and Emanuel Hirsch, was published by Yale University Press in 1985. It was translated into German, Dutch, and Japanese. In 2005, it was made into a documentary film of the same name produced by Vital Visuals, which incidentally uh, is headed by our own uh, secretary to the Board of Governors here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, uh, Reverend Steve Martin. And that was seen on PBS uh, by uh, in approximately 43 million households. Erickson co-edited with Susanna Heschel of Dartmouth College, Betrayal, German Churches and the Holocaust. His most recent book, Complicity in the Holocaust, Churches and Universities in Nazi Germany, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. He is now under contract with Cambridge University again to complete Christians in Nazi Germany, which will appear in their short history series. Erickson has been a fellow of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and the Lutheran Academy of Scholars at Harvard University. He has received research awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities, among others, and is a founding member on the board of directors of the German journal Kirchliche Zeitgeschichte and of an online journal, Contemporary Church History Quarterly, and of an online journal, Contemporary Church History Quarterly. I'm going to do that whole clause again. He is a founding member on the board of editors of a German journal, 
uh, Kirchliche Zeitgeschichte, and of an online journal, Contemporary Church History Quarterly. He serves as chair of the Committee on Ethics, Religion, and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. So with that introduction, you can see we are in for a substantive conversation. Here I am talking with Dr. Erickson. Dr. Erickson, Bob, as I know you, if I may be so presumptuous, it's good to be with you in conversation again. Thank you. And if I may be so presumptuous, I will call you Rob. It's good to have known you for a few years now, and I'm pleased to have this conversation. Well, likewise, my friend, uh, and thank you for taking the time to be with me and our podcast family here at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. I'm going to mention right out of the gate that I got to know you after reading Theologians Under Hitler, which remains among my most useful and productive resources all these years later. And I thank you for that great contribution, as well as all the others. We're here today talking about the church in Germany. I have in the back of my mind maybe some contemporary parallels uh, with its experience, but I wonder if you could take us back to a time even before the rise of National Socialism in Germany, of the Hitler phenomenon. What was the state of the church in Germany at that time, maybe during the First World War, the Great War, even prior to that? Uh, thank you for that introduction and that question. Uh, I am a historian, so I'll give you a little more than you bargained for, perhaps. Please. Uh, but I do want to look at some background for both the Catholic and Protestant churches in Germany, and actually in the Western world, uh, in the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s, the period we'll focus on. Part of that background really begins with the Enlightenment of the 18th century. And in fact, many of the theologians that I studied, the, the theologians who became uh, strong Nazi supporters, and we'll get to that whole story uh, before too long, those theologians very often, Christians in the 1920s in Germany, very often were bitter enemies of the Enlightenment. They were against democracy. They had lost their Kaiser at the end of World War I. Uh, Germany had been a right-wing state under the influence, first of all, of Bismarck in most of the latter years of the 19th century, and always with a monarch since the formation of a unified Germany. Not only did these professors, many Christians, oppose the Enlightenment for its democracy, but also for its idea of intellectual inquiry, that all questions should be researched, should be uh, thought through in terms of um, their history, uh, the historical setting, uh, a philosophy of history, and so forth. And all of that, of course, is essentially the foundation of the United States. Our country was born with the idea of representative government, 
the right to have representation, the right to vote, the right to guide our own affairs. We broke away from England uh, on that account. And all of that is an Enlightenment story. Uh, in the 19th century in Germany, there was a gradual development of representative government. And the churches often felt that they were out of step with what was happening. Uh, for one thing, they're developed political parties. By the 20th century, one of the strongest political parties in Germany was the Social Democratic Party, a left-wing party, socialist, but uh, not very socialist, certainly not revolutionary. There was also a communist party, which was, at least in its words, revolutionary. And so the churches didn't like that left-wing side of democracy, but they also really questioned um, the vote of the people, the rights of the people, and so forth. In the 19th century, uh, that was standard. And the churches considered the Kaiser the head of their church. He was the um, figurehead. Uh, the Kaiser himself, uh, Germany was a Protestant nation primarily, and the Kaiser was always the head of the Protestant church, which is essentially the Lutheran church in Germany. The, there was about a one-third Catholic population in Germany, and so two-thirds Protestant, one-third Catholic. Coming into the 1920s, you've got this uh, religious suspicion against the Enlightenment and Enlightenment ideas, modern liberal ideas. Along with that, there was heavy industrialization, and Germany was very good at that. So Germany became a very powerful, very rich country. And uh, most Germans were happy with that in the sense that it produced uh, rising standards of living and so forth. But it also produced <clears throat> questions about how uh, money or influence of money or the desire for money might challenge people's willingness to go to church or sit in church and listen to a pastor. Uh, <clears throat> despite all that, church membership, Protestant and Catholic, and attendance was still very high uh, compared to any standards we have in our world today. Um, Germans were certainly going to church at least as in as many numbers percentage-wise as Americans by the 1920s and 1930s. So it's a very Christian country and uh, a pretty religious country in terms of uh, participation within the churches. The final thing I want to mention about the 19th century is that it had a tremendous development of nationalism. This was all over the world, really. But in Germany, especially when Bismarck came to power in the uh, 1850s and 1860s, Germany became a larger, uh, more powerful nation, one of the great nations of the world. <clears throat> they had their controversies with France, with England, their rivalries, really. But Germans became very proud of their nation. Bismarck was a Lutheran. He was quite religious. And uh, they were, the Protestants were very happy with that. And so we have all of these changes of the 19th century, uh, urbanization, industrialization, enlightenment, growing democracy, and um, all of this with a very proud and successful Germany. And then the most crucial thing that affected the 1920s 
um, essentially, or at least at the beginning, was World War One, which, as I think everyone in our audience will know, uh, was a very long and very costly war. And of course, Germany lost. In the process of World War One, there were uh, two million German soldiers killed, which is an astonishing number. This was in a population of about 60 million people. This means that uh, in comparison to American losses in war, Germany lost more soldiers in World War I than the United States, about twice as many soldiers as the United States has lost in all of the world's, all of the wars of our nation's history, including both sides of the Confederate War or the uh, Civil War. <laughs> so by 1920, Germany was had all of these deaths in the family. They had all sorts of other soldiers who were wounded, disabled, and so forth. And in that very jolting change, they also lost their Kaiser, who was uh, forced out or fled the country, and they developed a new democratic system. From 1919 to 1933, Germany had an experiment with democracy. They also faced the Great Depression that broke out for Germans in 1930. And all of this created an atmosphere of um, crisis. And this crisis was felt by the churches, by Christians in Germany, as not only the national crisis, but a religious crisis as well, because uh, so much of, of 1920s culture, this was true in America in the 1920s as well, was a challenge to traditional religious beliefs, dancing, drinking, partying, and so forth, a more open culture, a more urban culture. And so with all of these, um, with all of these factors in play, Christians were still very important in Germany, but they were nervous and they were unhappy about the trends that they were facing. Now, the, 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 if I may just break in for a minute and say the parallels here to my own observations uh, in the American church, for example, you allude to the Weimar period, that yeah. uh, interim experiment in democracy, as you described it. Uh, you know, if, if anyone needs just a, a quick introduction to that uh, on a cultural level, uh, maybe Cabaret, the, the classic film of the late 1960s, would be a good uh, introduction to that. And so that, that perception of decadence, of um, license, moral or immoral license, mm -hmm. uh, has a parallel here in the United States. I mean, I, I, I lived it as yes, the evangelical yes. church reacted to the 1960s and early 70s and how they perceived the sort of moral collapse of American society. So I, I just thought I'd offer that reflection because, again, I'm always struck by the parallels here. But I interrupted you, and I apologize. No apologies needed. As you know, Rob, I have had a career of about four decades of teaching history at the university level. And so I'm used to doing a lot of talking and you can interrupt me anytime you want. Okay, um, I will, but I, <laughs> I will be sparing because I'm hanging on every word. I'm literally taking notes like I was back in a classroom 
uh, 30 years ago. So please, dear well, professor, say on. Uh, well, thank you for your generosity. Um, in this setting, Adolf Hitler developed a new political party, very anti-Semitic, very nationalistic, very right-wing, very, uh, very interested in returning to an autocrat in charge of Germany rather than that democratic system. And as uh, when Hitler began his politics in the early 1920s, um, it was a tiny little fringe movement. Through most of the 90, 1920s, it was pretty insignificant. But when the, when the economic problems hit and uh, all the unemployment hit, 1930 and beyond, the attraction of the Nazi party as an alternative, uh, what can we find as an alternative to our more democratic-leaning political parties uh, that existed? And there were multiple parties. But um, the feeling in the country of crisis allowed Hitler and his very dramatic and uh, radical ideas uh, some mood, some room to move. And so from 1930 to 1932, the Nazi party grew in strength until finally it became the largest single political party in the German uh representative body of the Reichstag. <clears throat> and at that point, um, a very strong majority of Protestants were Nazi voters. In fact, um, pastors supported the Nazi party. The voting districts that were the most Protestant and the most religious also gave the Nazi party the votes they needed to come to power. The, the voting analysis that's been done is very clear on this. Uh, multiple scholars have studied it. One of the regions in Germany that fits this description is the northern part of Germany, quite rural in many cases, very Protestant, and it was always referred to as a brown portion of Germany, the brown voters of Germany, because uh, brown was a uh, color associated with the Nazi party. And with the, election, with the elections that took place in, at the end of 1932 and the beginning of 1933, the Nazi party gained enough support, not majority support, but enough support so that they could form a coalition government. And, and Hitler was made uh, chancellor of Germany in, in the 30th of January, 1933. Which was welcomed, uh, I, I remember reading in your own work. Yes. It was welcomed by the churches as a gift and miracle from God. Yes. And, <laughs> That's and an astonishing statement. And, and you're quoting one of the most uh, important and respected theologians in Germany at the time, and certainly the most important Lutheran theologian, Paul Althaus. And he, in fact, greeted the rise of Hitler with a lecture and then with a book that said that those words exactly. This is a gift and miracle from God. And uh, let me back up. I know that I've been, uh, you know, meandering along already, but you have mentioned a couple of times this book that uh, my first book, 
which came out of my PhD dissertation. And I think I should uh, tell the listeners that I actually began my interest, my scholarly interest in Nazi Germany when I began a PhD program in London at the London School of Economics. And I proposed in 1971, and I proposed that I would do a dissertation on professors of theology at German universities and their response to the Nazi regime. My thought was twofold because I intended to have an academic career myself, so I was interested in professors and the academic world. But I also grew up in a Lutheran pastor's household, and in fact, my dad and both of his brothers were Lutheran pastors. They were both uh, children of Norwegian immigrants. Uh, two of my own brothers became Lutheran pastors. I had been surrounded by Lutheran pastors all of my life. And I went into this knowing, of course, that Martin Luther was uh, the uh, father of our uh, denomination, and our religious point of view. I went into this thinking, now I see naively, that certainly really well-educated professors would not have much respect for Hitler, who had an eighth grade education, mm. that uh, Lutherans with their understanding of Lutheran theology and their commitment to a particular religious point of view would see the Nazi regime as violating that point of view. So I went in assuming not that these professors would all be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, mm -hmm. By the way, uh, he was a hero of mine from the age of about 16 uh, when I was first introduced to him. And uh, that was a big source of my interest in this topic when I went to London. But I didn't expect people to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer because that took tremendous courage and, um, and also perhaps the right circumstances in life. But I thought that at least in their hearts and secretly and maybe among each other, they would have ways to try to uh, resist or um, counter the Nazi point of view and the Nazi behaviors. And what I learned and what I concluded and what I've written about for the rest of my career is that these professors of theology, like Paul Althaus, a really respected man, thought Hitler was a gift and miracle from God. It's astonishing, but we have to remember that because uh, we know Hitler to be not at all religious. He was raised in a Catholic household. After his uh, early teen years, he never went to church again. He scorned the church, and uh, he never attended church or had any religious behavior at all when he was uh, a politician or the leader of Germany. And yet, what I discovered among these professors of theology is that, except with a few exceptions, uh, they really thought that Hitler was doing wonderful things for Germany. Now, that's a strong statement to make, but I think there's just no way around it. And that's pretty much the academic uh, conclusion uh, in the world today. It wasn't when I started, by the way. There were a lot of um, people who were apologists for Christians in Nazi Germany and thought most of them were uh, critics of the state, secret critics perhaps, uh, that they were not enthusiastic, that they at least sympathized with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, even if they didn't have the courage to be a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and I'll tell you, I don't know how much time we have, really, but I'll tell you one little we anecdote. We have an unlimited <laughs> amount of time, so please. <laughs> Thank you. 
take your one anecdote here. from my first research here in Germany, which was in 1972-73, and I was renting an upstairs apartment from a couple that were church-going Lutherans, and uh, on one occasion, they were, you know, I had to, my work to do, and I stayed upstairs, but um, the woman especially said, you know, if you ever want to watch television or come down and join us in the evening, please do. And I knew there was a program on German television that year or that week on Bonhoeffer. And so I, I went to her that morning and I said, you know, I really would like to watch this program on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, if that's okay with you. And she said, you know, uh, Werner would never allow that in this house. He will no doubt be celebrated for a hero but to us, he was only a traitor. And that idea in 1973 in Germany, 1972 probably, um, was quite common. There were other people, bishops, who when they were asked to do a memorial service uh, for Bonhoeffer, uh, there was one bishop in uh, Bavaria who refused to do it because he said the same thing in the early 1950s. Um, uh, Bonhoeffer wasn't a hero. He was uh, he was not a good German at all. Now, that's that's the most important thing I think that came out of my my decision to do this research topic. That book I wrote on theologians under Hitler was the recognition that for most Protestants in Germany, they were much more likely to be supporters of Hitler good Nazis than to be critics or to find any fault with the kinds of things that the world has since labeled crimes against humanity. Of course, it didn't start out with death camps. From 1933 to 1939, when World War II broke out, um, they weren't murdering Jews on a regular basis or in industrial numbers. But the harshness of the Nazi state, the mistreatment of Jews, the uh, the laws that were established to take away the rights of Jews, all of these things were fully in place by 1935 with the Nuremberg racial laws, and they were mostly in place after, after April of 1933 with the first set of laws that were designed to remove Jews from uh, any important positions in German life, uh, certainly university professors, school teachers, and so forth, but way beyond that to any um, middle class activity um, that they thought could be better performed or filled by an Aryan, a so-called Aryan German, and certainly not by a Jew. So we've got this story where I don't think we exaggerate the nastiness of the Nazi regime the evil of the Nazi regime, the harshness, the brutality of Hitler's policies. I don't think we exaggerate that at all. In fact, in my lifetime, our entire culture has learned through Holocaust museums and Holocaust movies and, and, and courses and books and all sorts of things. We've learned more and more about how bad it really was. And almost always the story gets worse instead of better. And, and and may I ask here, just um, 
how one finds an explanation for Christian clergy, for, you know, active and, and engaged and learned lay people, for theological educators, scholars, embracing such a nastiness, such a harshness, such a cruelty, their contempt, uh, not only for Jews, but for others, the yes. Gypsy Roma, uh, other sectors of, of the human family. How, how do we find an explanation other than, okay, they were nationalists, they were patriotic, they, they you know, uh, how, how could this be? In other words, how could they not have seen the contradiction with the message they bore, the Reformation message of the evangel, the gospel. Yes. Uh, I have to remind Americans that uh, they were the evangelical church of Germany. They were the exactly. evangelische Kirche. Yeah. So how does one find an explanation for this? Um, first of all, you're absolutely right that they were evangelisch. We call them the Protestant church. We usually translate it that, but they always refer to it as the Evangelische Kirche. That was the Protestant church in Germany. And, and you know, they would have agreed with everything you said about the importance of the uh, Evangel, about the importance of the Christian message, about, uh, about Martin Luther's theology of uh, redemption and by faith are we saved, and all of those kinds of things that are part of uh, Protestant Christianity to this day uh, were thought to be at the heart of, and certainly those Germans in that day would have said they were at the heart of, it was at the heart of their religious belief as well, and their preaching and their teaching and so forth. So we get to your question. How could these people possibly not see the contradiction in all of what was happening, the contradiction in their political enthusiasm and uh, and their religious beliefs, or that, you know, worst of all, that their contradiction against the teachings of Jesus himself, um, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. The parable of the Good Samaritan. If someone's not of your own culture, of your own nationality, you don't walk by, you help them out. You give them sucker, and all of those teachings seems to have seem to have disappeared entirely. And um, I will I will give you some theories uh, if I can. I'm not sure that I could ever explain this, but um, I do think that there were religious ideas in 20th century Germany and in 20th century Western culture in general which were so critical. I mentioned virtually all of these professors of theology really were critics of the Enlightenment and an open democratic society, freedom of the press, for example. Uh, and the critics within the church thought, how can we keep our church members, how can we raise our children according to our values, 
according to our restrictions on sexual behavior, on cultural behavior, on uh, how they think about the world, the, the way they take their education, et cetera. How can we protect them from these modern trends that are so uh, hostile to our view of a Christian life, our view of what a good Christian must do? And I do think that the idea of a strong nation, a powerful nation, uh, by the 1920s and the 1930s, a nation that's ready to strike back against our enemies. And of course, when war broke out in September of 1939, it was a war that had already been signaled by Hitler for years. There were a series of measures that Hitler took, very aggressive measures uh, against uh, nations. Uh, for example, uh, they got the Sudetenland from Czechoslovakia by threatening it in uh, 1938. And everyone thought it was going to be another war. And the rest of the world, well, especially uh, France, England, and Italy, backed down and said, okay, uh, we won't ask the Czechs, but you can have the Sudetenland. And then six months later, Nazi troops, German troops invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia and simply took over the country. There were all these kinds of things happening, uh, breaking of the Versailles Treaty, which had tried to restrict Germany. And uh, Germans thought it was so important to build up Germany's strength and its place in the world that even if it was kind of harsh, and in fact, most of Hitler's activities in the 1930s violated international norms of national behavior, of restrictions on military force, of, you know, uh, centuries of just war theory were violated by what Germany did in the 1930s. And Christians in Germany didn't say to themselves, well, in concert with Christians all over the world, we find these things not only to be against international law, but against Christian values. You don't go around holding a gun to people's heads and force them to give you their country or give you their land or give you what you want. Um, and no Christians, almost, almost, there was a, a tiny little pacifist movement in Germany uh, prior to the Nazi period. Then it became uh, illegal and dangerous to be an active pacifist. but. Uh, there were no Christians who said, this is wrong, this is wrong. And then we have to get into uh, the incredible mistreatment of Jews. How could Christian love for your neighbor or respect for your neighbor's rights or do unto others as you would have them do unto you? How could anyone follow that and then also support the mistreatment of Jews? And uh, And here we have to acknowledge that we've got about 2,000 years of Christian hostility toward Jews in which Christians have behaved, behaved very brutally and uh, very harshly and very unfairly toward Jews as a tiny little minority population in various European communities and elsewhere in the world uh, for centuries. And so it was no surprise, really, that Christians accepted anti-Jewish uh, measures, even though they're so harsh and they're so violent, they so violate human rights and, and the right of a human being.
to to live safely. Um, all of these things, it's it's somehow, I suppose, Christians imagining that there is something about their own sense of an orderly German Christian society that is benefiting from the Nazis, from the rigor, for example, from the discipline. And that that's, and that's, there's something good about their own sense of nationalist Germans that we're strong again and people respect us again and get out of our way. So it's so strong that it completely overcomes any willingness on their part to look at the human tragedy and the morality, the violation of Jesus' teachings that was part and parcel. The, the entire Nazi movement, the entire Nazi ideology was hostile to any meaningful understanding of Christian compassion and Christian love and Christian uh, faith that I can imagine. And yet, and this is what you know started for me 50 years ago, trying to figure out how this could happen it did happen. That's the one thing we know. It did happen. And if we look at now, by the way, I've been talking only about Protestants. The one third of, ca of the population and after Austria and Germany were brought together, it became about 40 percent of the population of the larger Germany before World War Two was Catholic. And the Catholic bishops, the Catholic priests, the Catholic uh, members were very, very similar to the Protestants. At first, there was a Catholic political party in the Weimar period, and most Catholics voted for the center party, it was called. But as soon as Hitler came to power in 1933, the Catholic representatives in the Reichstag voted, I haven't mentioned this yet, but already uh, by April of 1933, uh, excuse me, March of 1933, the Reichstag handed Hitler a four-year dictatorship. It was called the Enabling Act, and it allowed him to do anything he wanted and not let the Reichstag get in his way. He wouldn't have to have votes to do that. And after the four years, of course, they just extended it, and he was a dictator for the rest of his uh, Third Reich. But in any case, the Catholic Church supported that. The Catholic priests supported that. There was very little dissent, and there was a great deal of enthusiasm. Uh, throughout the Nazi period, the Catholic archbishops and bishops would send telegrams to Hitler on his birthday every year, thanking him and congratulating him. This is right through 1944 of the wonderful things he was doing for Germany. And of course, the Protestant bishops, bishops were doing the same thing. So we've got this situation where... Christian behavior in Nazi Germany, I think, astonishes us, disappoints us. But despite the Dietrich Bonhoeffers in Germany, and we can talk about that too, because there, there certainly were people who deserve our admiration and uh, our appreciation that they represented Christianity the way we would want them to. There were those people. But if you look at the overall pattern of Catholic and Protestant attitude throughout the Third Reich, its majority support for the Nazi state. And I wonder if uh, some of that has to do with the formulation you gave us in describing the church as the German yes. church. Yeah. 
And when you put that uh, qualifier in front, uh, you get a different outcome. Uh, when the when the church becomes something other than simply the church, mm-hmm. and I would love to explore that with you in a subsequent conversation, <laughs> if, if we can ever have another one. Of, if we I have one, exhaust you in this one. <laughs> uh, but you have set the stage here for what becomes a formal complicity at some point, where the church is in fact assisting at least in part, the dictatorship, the cruel, uh, inhuman regime that is the Third Reich. Am I correct in describing it that way? Is there, does there come a point of formal assistance to the regime? Yes, for sure. Um, There are all sorts of examples of that. And uh, I will give you a couple. Uh, I've already mentioned the the praise that bishops and others and clergy gave to Hitler on a regular basis uh, and announced this praise, you know, sent their telegrams, but also announced this within their churches and in their uh, church publications and so forth. Um, and that's a form of complicity, certainly. Uh, in addition to that, um, the churches imposed limitations on Jews, for example. You'd think that there were a number of Christians of Jewish descent. There were about 500,000 Jews in Germany who were still Jewish in their uh, beliefs when the Nazis came to power. And then there was a large number, uh, certainly over 100,000, who were Christians of Jewish descent or uh, non-Aryan Christians, as they would have been known at the time. And one of the first things that the Nazis did was to try to take all Jews, whether of whether Christian or not, and uh, deny them the right to work in any normal activity within the German economy and the German uh, structure. By 1935, the regime created a very specific mechanism for identifying Aryans versus Jews. And these were the racial laws, the Nuremberg racial laws of 1935. And in those laws, they established, uh, the Nazis, of course, had this incredible uh, focus or mania about what they thought of as purity of blood and the importance of blood. And uh, they then, in the Nuremberg racial laws, established uh, several categories that were based upon grandparents, the four grandparents of any individual. If you had four grandparents who were baptized at birth or as infants, you were declared an Aryan. If you had three grandparents who were baptized, you were you were declared a Mischling of the first degree. And if you had two grandparents uh, that were uh, 
Jewish or they were baptized, you were uh, a Mischling. And so all of this amounted to determining your legal status in Germany and these various categories of Mischling in between uh, and Jewish and Aryan were determined by baptismal certificates. Now, the churches were the custodians of baptismal certificates. So beginning in 1935, Germans who wanted any kind of a position in life uh, to join the military or to uh, go to university or to have a certain kind of job, they had to take a, a document to the church where their grandparents had been born or more than one church if necessary. And they would go to the church, the church pastor or priest or perhaps some assistant would go to the baptismal records. They would write in the name of the grandparent, the date of the bap- the date of birth and the date of the baptism. And if you got four stamps in the four quartiles of that document, you proved that you were an Aryan German. And without this, and if you could only get three stamps or you only get two stamps or only one stamp, and if you couldn't get any stamps at all, these determined your outcome as the anti-Jewish measures were enforced more and more uh, thoroughly. Now, without the participation of the pastors and priests, this could not have happened. But not only did they all participate, but there were some, there are stories of pastors who particularly enjoyed the idea of helping people find their past and going through their records and even going through their records on their own. Because occasionally in, in Nazi Germany, of course, if you could be outed as Jewish, it was a major scandal. You might lose your position in life and so forth. And so there was a great deal of search through these church records to out individuals, especially, say, generals in the military or important figures in the government and so forth. This was one of the many ways that Protestants and Catholics participated in the discrimination and and essentially made it possible. That's alongside... So, so two points here. Uh, one is, of course, this would touch Bonhoeffer's own family. Absolutely. When his brother-in-law... Uh, Gerhard Liebholz lost his university post yes. uh, as a lecturer in the law yes. because of his Jewish ancestry. Right. Uh, and uh, then, of course, too, here was a an inflection point where the church could have perhaps uh, taken its stand. Uh, yes, I'm deliberately alluding to uh, its founder, uh, yes, Martin Luther. Here I stand exactly. He took his stand. It could have taken a stand. Its its leadership, pastors, even lay authorities could have said, "No, we will not cooperate, collaborate, conspire with you uh, in this evil." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it failed. It failed. Yeah, it definitely and failed. In fact, in that. Yes, eagerly yes. played the opposite role as an enabler. <clears throat> yes. And then I can tell you another story that uh, is a smaller version of this in which a church played a conflicted role, and that has to do with the Aryan paragraph as it applied to, as it could be applied to Christian clergy. 
among those people with a Jewish background some and who converted to Christianity, some of them, of course, became pastors or priests. And particularly, the, the, the Protestant church was the larger one, and there were more Protestant pastors of Jewish descent. And in 1933 already, there developed a movement of particularly fervent Nazi supporters within the Protestant church. They became known, they called themselves the Deutsche Christen, which simply means the German Christians. And they wanted to purify the Christian teachings and the Christian documents of any Jewish taint. And this gets into an absurd level of um, considerations, which we can talk about if you like. But in terms of their first response of these Deutsche Christen to the um, question of Jewishness within the church, they insisted that any pastors of Jewish descent should be removed from their position. They should be uh, removed and denied the right to be a Protestant pastor. There were, in fact, Christians in the theological faculties and in the church in general who said, no, that's not right. They were perhaps born and baptized as Christians, or they became Christians and were baptized. They studied theology. They were, <clears throat> they were confirmed as clergy, and they've been serving as clergy. And because they have, quote unquote, Jewish blood, we should not deny that. In 1933 through 1935, there was a fairly brisk argument in the Protestant church about what to do. And uh, some of the more, you know, certainly the, the Bonhoeffer side of the church, the confessing church side, uh, which was fairly small anyway, and, and much of the confessing church was not nearly as radical or committed as, as Bonhoeffer was about his critique of the Nazi state. But in any case, uh, within the confessing church, you found a lot more pastors and church members who didn't think that uh, Christians of Jewish descent should be kicked out of the clergy. But the Deutsche Christen insisted that they should be. And this battle, you can look at it in 1933, 1934, at big uh, conventions and meetings and so forth. By 1937 or 1938, every one of those uh, non-Aryan pastors was gone. In many cases, uh, for example, I'm familiar with one case in the city of Göttingen, a university town, where a, a pastor of Jewish descent started having parishioners parade outside the church when he was officiating or when he was preaching. And his bishop, who uh, theoretically defended him, said, uh, well, you've got to take this into account. Uh, we'll try to protect you. Uh, and in all of those steps that were taken to try to protect these uh, Jewish Christian pastors, it simply didn't work. And within three to four years, they were all gone. If they were lucky, they fled the country uh, and survived. But that's another case where, uh, even though there's a big argument within the Protestant church, uh, in the end, the Nazi view prevailed and uh, any clergy of Christian descent, of Jewish descent were gone.
May I take you for a moment into a little sidebar? Because I have heard some, uh, you know, people casually dismiss this and say, well, of course, you got to keep in mind Lutheran Church was a state church, Catholic Church was long corrupted in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they seem to suggest that there were other Christian communities, sects, if you will, within Germany. Mm-hmm that were more resistant and and of course we know there were a few as you mentioned there were small numbers um but i was rather shocked recently i was visiting with the well pre-covid pre-pandemic i was visiting with the moravians uh Mm -hmm. in pennsylvania and of course bunhofer was inspired by the moravians the pietistic uh sect in Germany, read their uh, daily word, the the uh, daily devotional produced yes, yes. by that church body. Mm-hmm. And I asked, you know, were Moravians of that period in Germany resistant to the Nazis? Were they in opposition? And the general answer I got from their church historian was no. Exactly. They kind of went along to yeah. get along. Does that describe most of the of the other Christian communities within Germany of that period? It does. A good friend of mine uh, in Germany is a historian of. In fact, her father was a Baptist bishop, and she became. She wrote a an important book on the Baptist church in Nazi Germany, and the story of the Baptist church is that the positive nationalistic political support for the Nazi point of view and for Adolf Hitler was very comparable to what you see in the churches we're describing, the the national churches as you described them. There's another example that I ran across um, some years ago, and it involves uh, a little sect that I'd never heard of, but this sect uh, was particularly interested in a connection to Israel because of the second coming of Christ. And so they had their uh, church or maybe a small group of churches, a little community in the center of Germany, uh, where this was the main message of their teachings, of their church worship. Uh, They were communities that were pretty much uh, only made up, small towns made up of believers in this group. And then they had their alternative place that they'd established in Israel in hopes of preparing for the second coming of Christ. And this was just a a, a good, traditional, um, quite pious Protestant group. And they were very concerned about, um, you know, morality and behavior and raising their children in the, in the church and in the spirit of their um, intense uh theological beliefs. And the one thing they there were they invited the Hitler youth into their community and their children joined the Hitler youth. And the one thing that they protested, that they regretted about the influ, you know, about the influence of Nazi or national socialist ideas in their community that came along with the Hitler youth and and various Nazis, of course. Uh, or people joining the Nazi party. The one thing they didn't like 
was that the Hitler Youth wanted to hold dances. That something they didn't believe in, you know, dances are too dangerous sexually or whatever, that this particular moral scruple of theirs was being violated by the Hitler Youth. And I find that so ironic. Uh, if that's the violation, but nothing else was a violation of their beliefs, uh, something is wrong from my perspective. And, uh, and I think that what you found with the Moravians and what I found in that particular instance and, and also in the Baptist Church and elsewhere uh, simply rings true across the board that um, the Christian support for Hitler during the Nazi regime was strong. It brought him to power and it kept a widespread support for him among the German people. Now, we do need to recognize, uh, especially with your uh, very strong interest and in work with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Society, and my loyalty to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my appreciation ever since I was a teenager of what he did and what he stood for, um, we need to recognize that there were Christians beyond Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There were additional groups of Christians who in the shadows, in the corners, did work in ways that I think we would all, all respect. And uh, this included, for example, some groups, Christian groups of pastors and lay people who tried to assist Jews in uh, hiding out or getting false identification or perhaps fleeing Germany. Uh, Bonhoeffer himself was involved in one little plot, uh, along with his brother-in-law, of trying to help a handful of people get the necessary paperwork and transportation to flee Germany and save themselves as Jews. <clears throat> There's a guy that I ran, I actually met this guy, uh, who was a teenager in Berlin in 1942, uh, 1941, 1942, and he began working. He was an artist, a uh, trained artist, and uh, he began working at creating false identification papers. This was in the church that was Martin Niemöller's church uh, in Western Berlin. And uh, B Martin Niemöller, another uh, heroic figure in the sense that he was arrested in 1937, I think it was, uh, and then kept, yes, he was in prison for eight years uh, before the end of the regime. He became uh, world famous and, in fact, later a president of the World Council of Churches and things like that. But in any case, in his church, there were still lay people who would practice putting their own ID papers into the alms box in the church. And weekly, those papers would be gathered up and taken to a studio where this young man was working, and he would then uh, add a new photograph, a new name, and then he would, he created the, the most important thing is with his uh, graphic skills, he created a stamp that was the perfect image, a, a, a perfect uh, version of the standard Nazi stamp and the swastika so that when he stamped with uh, actually with watercolor paints the purple color of that stamp uh, he was giving people id that worked for them 
And uh, that's an example of a group of Christians, you know, certainly dozens, and, and in, when they were found out, uh, some of them were severely punished for it. Um, but in any case, there were groups of people who did that sort of thing. That ends the first part of my conversation with Bob Erickson. Watch for us to post the second part. You'll find it just as compelling.